I would like to um, ask Rabbi Rick Steinberg to come take over the dais. I thank you all for coming and uh, look forward to a great program. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's our tradition here at Temple to turn to someone you don't know, introduce yourself, and uh, say hello. Friends, if you, um, if you have a cell phone, if you'd please turn that off as well. Thank you so much. Welcome to our congregation. Um, I just want to say a couple words. First, about CSP. First, about CSP. Um, the Community Scholar Program has singularly changed the face of Orange County Judaism. When I came here 13 years ago, um, we were a growing community, sort of maturing. We were building a new JCC. Our Tarbut Torah was growing as well. Our synagogues were growing and came along CSP, who added a whole nother level of understanding and Jewish learning in Orange County. For those of you who study the Jewish community just in general on the national and international scene, it is changing rapidly. And it's because of programs like CSP that Jews are being educated, not just at the basic level, but at higher levels as well. And I want to thank all those people who participate, in particular Ari Katz, whose leadership and uh, vision really helped create such a program that continues to be strong. So round of applause for Ari. It is a particular honor to welcome Rabbi Uri Regev to our congregation. Um, I have followed Rabbi Regev's uh, career for the last 23 years. He hasn't followed mine as closely, but I've followed his <laughs> very closely, and I'll tell you why. Because 23 years ago in 1990, I was a rabbinic student in Jerusalem. If you remember, 1990 and 91 was the year of the Gulf War. And uh, at that time, Rabbi Regev, if I'm not mistaken, was the uh, leader of the Israeli Religious Action Center. And part of his responsibility was to be the rabbi of the synagogue at Hebrew Union College, where he would preach on Saturday mornings. And as a 22-year-old student, you can do the math, as a 22-year-old student who was really nervous about getting his gas mask about what it meant to be in really a global situation in which there would be Scud missiles fired down upon us. We were looking for a leader, and we were looking for inspiration. And it came in the form of Rabbi Uri Regev, who constantly taught us about the value of the Jewish land, about Zionism, about what it meant to be a secure people in a secure land. And I can tell you uh, that his words and his leadership during that year in particular for me and for my fellow students helped us get through what was a very challenging, difficult, inspiring time. And so just thank you very much, Rabbi Regev. I never told you that before, and I wanted to share that with you. Just a couple notes of biography. Currently, Rabbi Regev is the president and CEO of the Educational Advo Advocacy Israel Diaspora Partnership called Chidush. Freedom of, religious, of Religion for Israel. Prior to that, he served as the president and CEO of the World Union for Progressive Judaism. Suffice it to say, as a reform rabbi, there is no greater voice on the Jewish scene in the world for uh, pluralism and equality than Rabbi Uri Regev, and we are very privileged to have him here today. So welcome. Rick, uh, you have not mentioned that to me before, and I moved uh, to hear that I could have that kind of an impact that you would remember 22 years later, and uh, so I appreciate you mentioning it, and, uh, and I'm glad that I had a role to play in that uh, critical, challenging year. Uh, I think that maybe at some point you may want to uh, share with your congregants the uh, challenges of that year uh, that were manifold. Uh, it goes beyond the topic of discussion today. I just want to, yes, want to take one more document out. 
<coughs> so, Todaraba, I'm very impressed with the program. And what I was also impressed with is uh, Ari used the opportunity that the connection was created between us uh, to pick my brains as to the upcoming trip to Israel. And uh, I don't know whether you fully realized it, but when I looked at the itinerary, I was blown away. I have seen many uh, itineraries of many groups that visit Israel. But frankly, I have not seen one like that. So it's uh, the best thing I can say about it is that's a program I would love to be on. <laughs> Uh, and there is so much in that program that I actually have not seen or not heard uh, that I think anybody who joins you on this program is going to be not just having a treat, but learning about Israel in a way that is, I uh, think, quite rare. And coming back, you would have a very in-depth understanding of many layers of Israeli society and the land uh, and the uh, security and the culture and so much more. So uh, if you are still considering uh, what you would be doing and whether you should be joining this uh, trip, uh, you have my uh, un uh, unequivocal uh, endorsement and pitch to take advantage of it. So the topic is uh, religious freedom in Israel. And uh, you know, in a way, one should wonder, why is it that we need to talk about it? Um, because if you go back in your mind, and some, I think, have been uh, witnessing the birth of Israel, uh, and some were not around, but may, might have come across, um, uh, the, the founding document, um, and talking about the founding document, Gordon Silverman is that handler that, uh, that uh, Ari was referring to. <laughs> Gordon Silverman is my partner who is uh, working with me in the U.S., but they are... A bunch of materials. Oh, exactly. That's what, I, that's what I wanted to say. So there are some materials, and one of them is a folded card that on the front of it, there is a quote from Israel's Declaration of Independence. So when we speak about the founding vision and the founding document, we are talking about Declaration of Independence, which sets out the vision of what Israel is about. Now, often I will ask individuals and groups that I meet with, when you hear the word Israel, when you are in a conversation or you think about Israel, what is it that comes to your mind? What is it in one, you know, sort of quick, uh, one sentence, two th sentences <coughs> encapsulation of what Israel means to you? I hear variety of ideas, variety of visions. And what I realize is that we do not do enough as a community to discuss beyond the yearly crisis, or the monthly crisis, or the weekly crisis. We don't do enough to try and give ourselves an account as individuals, as Jews, and as a community as to what is this joint enterprise called the State of Israel that we are trying to be partners to, to be part of. And 65 years later, I want to share with you this is not any more understood or agreed upon, even among Israelis, than it was in those early founding days. And I think we are doing ourselves a disservice by not uh, committing to serious discussion, study, of these very underlying principles that make Israel, so unique in Jewish history and so unique in the lives of members of the Jewish people. Uh, because we resonate to the Gulf War, we resonate to the Lebanon War, Six-Day War, Yom Kippur War, the miracle of the ingathering of the exiles, whether it's Ethiopian uh, juries, Operation Moses, or, uh, or uh, Russian, Soviet Jewry, let my people go. Somehow we move from one crisis to another, and we are 
drawn to support the wonderful development of Israel's high-tech and biotech and agriculture and those of us who are involved in Hadassah and those of us who are involved in the Hebrew University or the Tel Aviv University or the Technion or Weizmann Institute, they are all exciting. And they are all building blocks in something that, as I said, we rarely stop to think, what is it that we are trying to build? So whereas Ari suggested that I present for a period of time and then leave a little time at the end for questions, I do want to pause for a moment before I continue and ask you that question and just hear a few simple answers, if I may. So when you think about Israel, what is it that comes to your mind in one sentence or two sentences? It's not a, you know, not a thesis, but just what is Israel for you? Yes, ma'am, and your name. Ancestral home of the Jewish people. Incredible miracle. It's a miracle. It's an incredible miracle. Yes. The Jewish state, the only democracy in the Middle East. The state of Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. Place where Jews can run to when they are hit in some other places. It's a place of refuge, a safe haven for Jews. <coughs> The scientific advances that the, the scientists in Israel are making, and when you think of the small population that they are. I don't know whether when you said incredible miracle you were referring to the emergence of a renewed sovereignty or the miracles of Israel being so small and yet so many Nobel laureates and such uh, scientific advancement, etc. Very well. Anybody else? Yes. For me, it's a it's a place of real challenge, a place that I'm trying to fit how it fits in my life as a Jew, and how it will fit in the life of my children, because um, we aren't dealing with the issues that I think you're going to talk about and other issues, and therefore, if you look at polls and understandings of Israel. The question is, how does Israel fit into our views as Jews? So that's All right. the challenge. Uh, thank you. Uh, we'll get back to that in one moment. Okay, so let me relate to what you have said and then take it in the direction of the topic uh, that I've dedicated many years of my life to and we have come together today to discuss. So on the one hand, there is a historical fact, uh, that's uh, where it all started uh, for the Jewish people. Or in connection with Israel, it all started for the Jewish people. The Jewish people actually weren't formed in the land of Israel, but it's all evolving around the land and the uh, uh, state uh, of the Jewish people in the land of Zion. But that's history it really doesn't necessarily convey much in terms of the future. Uh, and therefore, it's sort of neutral other than as Jews, we ought to never forget our history and never forget where it all started and therefore we should have a special place in our hearts for the land and the people and the state of Israel, but that doesn't take us very far beyond the past. It's an incredible miracle, is certainly, and the advances, certainly bodes well for Israel, and we are all very proud of Startup Nation, and as you said, it really addresses a variety of levels. But, well, so should we sit back and, uh, you know, and applaud and enjoy uh, the fact that Jews, when they have a chance to create or recreate their sovereignty, our sovereignty, we are doing well, uh, what, where does it take us beyond that? Uh, after we have recognized and appreciated the miracle. Now, the safe haven is very interesting. Safe haven none of us should underestimate the importance of Israel as a safe haven because 
at, in a generation that still remembers the plight of Jews who knocked on doors of every country and were told, we have no room for you. And those that did take Jews in said, but not too many of you. The realization that as safe, prosperous, secure, successful as the Jewish community in America is, unprecedented in Jewish history, you look at what happens in Europe today, and you realize there is really no assurance. And the interesting thing that you were alluding to is the state of Israel was created for that very purpose, in part. Namely, if you look at the definition as it is uh, sort of uh, phrased in the uh, Declaration of Independence, the state of Israel will be open to Jewish immigration from all corners of the world. It was preceded by the Balfour Declaration, the recognition of the British mandate, and later on the United Nations, of the right of the Jewish people to renew its sovereignty in, in the ancient homeland of the Jewish people, of the Jews. So by definition, Israel has opened its gates to Jews at any time they wish to, and certainly when they need to, without any consideration of economic capacity, social capacity. None of those considerations puts a, a, a boundary, a quota, a limitation on Israel's willingness and interest in opening its arms and taking in those who wish to or those who are in need. And clearly, that's part of the miracle, some million Israeli citizens who came from the former Soviet Union and those who came from Ethiopia and those who came from Arab lands. And the reality is, when you come across some um, vain Israelis who are vain for a variety of reasons and not necessarily bad you know, ill will, but somehow, occasionally, you come across individuals who follow a classic Zionist ideology and who'll tell you, if you know what's good for you, you would make Aliyah. You know, a good Jew should be living in Israel, or things of that nature. And again, we are not talking about extremists. We are talking about individuals of great repute, starting with Ben-Gurion, who basically believed that all Jews should come to Israel, and uh, most recently, um, our late uh, illustrious president, Ezer Weizmann, this war hero, this general, uh, who told every Jewish group uh, that came to see him, uh, you are doomed, uh, you are bound to disappear, assimilation is eating you up alive, we have solved the Jewish problem here in Israel, and if as I said, if you know what's good for you, come to Israel. There wasn't even one group that he spurred the insult of challenging the legitimacy of their life in the diaspora. Um, so, yes, uh, this view is heard quite often, and I come to you as a proud Israeli and as a Zionist, and I suggest to you that if you look at Jewish history, you will realize that whenever and wherever Jews resided, for the most part, they made that place their home. And you go back in your mind to the exile to Babylon and the painful words, there we sat and we wept as we remembered ye, O Zion. And there comes this great savior, Cyrus, who says, no need to weep anymore, go home. And the reality is that by that time, most felt that wherever they were was their home. They had no interest in detaching themselves and going back to Zion. So much so that there was need to tax the remaining community to make the transition of the few who returned to Zion viable. So never in Jewish history, when Jews had a choice did they en masse 
choose to relocate and return to Zion. I like it, I don't like it, it doesn't make any difference. That's the reality. And the reality is of a people that lives around the world, and the question is, so what is Israel for us? And that's the question that Ari posed. And frankly, as an insurance policy, it's very important, and I think that if we need any reason why, as Jews, we should be committed to the well-being and the strengthening of Israel and the viability of Israel, that in and of itself suffices. But if it's only that, you know, it's not enough. So the question is, is there a vision? Is there something that's exciting, that's challenging, that's connected with the idea of the renewed land and people and state of Israel that is relevant to us as, looking around the room, I assume mostly liberal Jews? And what I suggest to you is that what we should be asking ourselves is not only what is Israel to us, but what is Judaism to us. Because the nature of Judaism today has changed dramatically. And one may look at Judaism as we experience it today, and it is represented often by membership in the synagogue, attending Shabbat services, sending our children to Sunday school or to day school, participating in some form or another of Jewish intellectual engagement, Jewish social action, etc. That is not what Judaism uh, started out uh, and developed to be. Judaism aspired to be a holistic society, a comprehensive system of law, of criminal law, of labor law, of international relations, of security, morality. Judaism set out to prescribe how society should run its affairs. And the reality is that it was never intended to be reduced to a form of membership in a synagogue as much as a synagogue is relevant to contemporary Jewish life and preserving Jewish identity. And as powerful as you may be, you representing the American Jewish community, as powerful as you may be, frankly, you don't run America's military policies. Frankly, you don't run America's foreign policies. Frankly, you don't run America's criminal justice system. Yes, you play a role, but you don't shape it. Israel is that one place in the world where, as a people, we have an opportunity to shape society in a way that is in keeping with the core principles of our people. And the big question that we should be asking ourselves, and as I said, this isn't just about Israel, this is about how we view our Judaism. The big question that we should be asking ourselves is, is there meaning to Judaism in the third millennium? We know what it was in biblical times. We know what it was in rabbinic times. It defined people's lives in so many different areas. Does it define who we are, how we lead our lives, how our society operates? It does not. And there is one place that if we take Judaism seriously, and if we feel that it actually has a blueprint for society, that it actually can inspire society to be a society rooted in principles of justice, of tikkun olam, that follows those values of tzedek tzedek tirdof, that follows the values of the stranger that resides amongst you shall be like one of your own citizens because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And what you realize is that the way Israel treats its minorities is no less of a yardstick to how Jewish Israel is than the question of how Shabbat is observed. So the challenge that we face is, as liberal Jews, we should be the ones interested in seeing Israel as this lab testing out 
whether Judaism as a holistic, religious, moral, social, national tradition has relevance to the third millennium. This is our lab. There is no other lab. There can't be any other lab. You can convene here and talk about the theory, but the only way to test it out and see whether it's doable and relevant is out there. Because that's where Jews decide foreign relations. That's where Jews decide military ethics. That's where Jews shape the labor relations. That's where Jews shape criminal justice. That's where Jews test out economic justice in an open, modern, capitalistic, free society. And the question is, is Judaism inspiring these areas of life in Israel? The irony is that when the uh, question of relationship, and now that Nelson Mandela passed away, you know, it's time to sort of bring that back to memory. The relationship with apartheid South Africa. I would have expected the religious parties to come out and say this is racism is against the core values of Judaism. Jewishly, Israel cannot afford to disregard the existence of apartheid and racism. That didn't happen. And when I said today, you know, the question of how Israel treats its minorities today is as important, if not more important, the yardstick for how Jewish Israel is compared to whether Shabbat is observed and how it's observed, the chief rabbinate in Israel, the religious parties, the orthodox religious parties, both the modern orthodox and the ultra-orthodox, have nothing to say about minorities and economic justice. Nothing. What they are concerned about is making sure that reform and conservative and reconstructionist are kept out and they don't have a foot in the door in terms of official rabbinate, in terms of marriage and divorce, in terms of who is a Jew, and that, sure enough, public transportation is not allowed on Shabbat because, God forbid, if public transportation is allowed on Shabbat, then the whole thing is going to fall apart. Israel isn't going to be Jewish. Now, we are dealing with competing visions. If you ask me, what is the vision of the Orthodox establishment? I can tell you. Not because I guess, but because they said it. So years ago, I remember coming across an advisor to Shas who gave an interview when Shas, the ultra-Orthodox Sephardic party, was relatively young. I realize the time is running out. But... So, so uh, an advisor to Shas, who was interviewed in the paper, when Shas was still young and sort of filling out its way, and he was asked, when would you feel comfortable knowing that Israel is a Jewish state? And he said, when the police handles desecrators of Shabbat in public domain, the same way they deal with criminal offenders, I will know that Israel is a Jewish state. Now, this was an advisor, this was years ago. More recently, namely about a year ago, and you can read it uh, in our website, about a year ago, I really got upset. Because on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, as I said, not this Rosh Hashanah, the year before, uh, there was an interview with the then chief rabbi of Israel, uh, Rabbi Shlomo Amar. And the interviewer asked him a question. He said, there is an Israeli who finds himself in San Francisco on the high holidays, and the only synagogue that's close to his hotel is a reform synagogue. Should he go and pray in the reform synagogue, or should he pray alone at the hotel? Says Chief Rabbi Amar, no question. He should pray alone at the hotel and not go to the reform temple. But he said, I'll tell you more. Better that he never prays so long as he doesn't set foot in the Reform Synagogue. So I was thinking to myself, you know, I know people who hold this view. Obviously, it's a free country. Anybody is entitled to an opinion. Uh, and some I don't particularly care for. But he should be able to enjoy freedom of speech as much as I expect that my freedom of speech uh, be respected. But there is one big difference. He's the chief rabbi of Israel. 
And by law, he is the highest religious authority under the sort of umbrella of state laws and state institutions. He is the top Jew of the state of Israel. Now, when the top Jew of the state of Israel says, better never pray than attend a reform synagogue, and he says that in a reality in which, at least in this country, you know the majority of those who labor for the sake of Israel through federations, through Hadassah, through APEC, through uh, um, AJC, etc., 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 are reform or conservative, are choosing to go to synagogues of these non-Orthodox denominations. And what is he saying, in essence? He's saying, your Judaism is illegitimate. It's a heresy. Better that a Jew never prays than go to a reformer, conservative, or reconstruction synagogue. Now, so long as the leaders of the state of Israel don't come back and say, he's not speaking on our behalf, we renounce what he's saying, this is not the way Israel would like to see its relationship with the Jewish people. And it is willing to and embracing and welcoming all forms of Judaism, then by implication, our illustrious political leadership is basically sanctioning his misguided and hateful position, which is in total detachment from what we know of the reality of the Jewish people today. Well, I did a bit more research and found very interesting. You know, when one holds a hateful mindset vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Jewish people, it may not stop there, and it doesn't. So I found on Chief Rabbi Amar's website uh, a section in which he shared his view on the concept of chukimumishpatim, laws and judgments, or laws and, and regulations. So you can see it, at least those of you who read Hebrew, and those of you who don't can read it in an op-ed that I published shortly afterwards. Uh, and I was so upset, I really wrote it right after Rosh Hashanah, once I saw it, and it was published symbolically, maybe, in uh, uh, Open Zion, um, in uh, you know, the Daily Beast, exactly at your Kippur Kol Nidre time. <laughs> so, what he says is the following. The laws of the state of Israel are, in Jewish halachic, namely Jewish legal terms, chukot hagoyim, Gentile laws. And the courts of the state of Israel are they are Gentile courts. The Jews may not legitimately come to judgment before. The state of Israel, he wrote, should be governed by the laws of the Torah. And so long as it isn't governed by the laws of the Torah, it's as if they embrace, and he used the term sitra achra, namely Satan. And he said, so long as it's not governed by the laws of the Torah, Israel is not entitled to use the term Kiryane Mana, loyal city, namely loyal, loyal country, loyal community. And he ends this inspiring Jewish thought with a quote from the High Holiday Services, which you may recognize, not in that connection, uh, in which he said, and let all evil be consumed by smoke, and let this evil government disappear from the face of the earth. Now, a very interesting choice of a concluding, uh, you know, liturgical piece to the thought that the laws of the Knesset and the courts of the state of Israel are illegitimate and what Israel should be run under are the laws of the Torah and, of course, the legitimate interpreters of the laws of the Torah, such as, he would say, myself, namely Chief Rabbi Amal. So please understand. 65 years into the life of the country, we still are facing an existential debate as to what is the essence of the state of Israel. Back in 92, the Knesset passed what is the closest to our Bill of Rights, namely the Basic Law on Civil and Human Liberty and Dignity, which uses the phrase, the values of the state of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state. And ever since then, 92, this phrase, this coin, so to speak, Jewish and democratic state has been the basis of much political, scholarly, legal, 
and public debate as to what does it mean for Israel to be a Jewish and democratic state. And these are often conflicting values. So for Chief Rabbi Amari, it is very clear what Israel ought to be if it is to be considered a genuinely Jewish state. Basically the same as this advisor years ago who said, when the police handle the Sabbath desecrators in public domain, namely those who dare drive on Shabbat, in the same way that they handle criminal offenders, and we know the Bible uh, you know, is very, it's very clear. You desecrate the Sabbath, it's a capital punishment. You're stoned to death. Now, Rabbi Amal realizes he may not be able to do it right now, but that doesn't take away from a vision of that's what Israel as a Jewish state ought to be. And the question is, to what degree are we joining hands together and seriously considering the need to present a counter vision. And the irony is that those who would like to see Israel a theocracy have a very clear idea. They are outspoken in a variety of ways. Those who are liberal, democratic, believe in free choice, believe in religious diversity or religious pluralism, we are somehow intimidated. And often we think that working towards this vision is maybe critical of Israel, maybe controversial. Let's not rock the boat. There is nothing more pro-Israel we can do today than rocking the boat. Now, please understand, this isn't just a sermon that Rabbi Amar posted. This, as you may know, one of the great leaders uh, of ultra-Orthodox Judaism passed away short, uh, recently, Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, the leader, the supreme leader of Shas. And some months before he passed away, in one of his weekly public uh, deliveries on a Saturday night, uh, which, was, which is broadcast throughout the world via satellite, was broadcast every week, he delivered something that was widely reported that included his response or his recounting a question, a halachic question, a legal question that was brought before him. And the question was regarding the validity of a certain marriage, certain wedding. Now we know that for a Jewish wedding to be valid, you need the tabat, the ring, and the utterance, and you need two witnesses. And the two witnesses are what we call constitutive witnesses. Namely, without the witnesses, there is no wedding. Even if everybody agrees that they, you know, they recited the formula and he gave her a ring, etc., it's, uh, it's, it's void. It doesn't constitute anything in Jewish law unless it is accompanied by the presence of two valid witnesses. Well, so the late Rabbi Ovadi Yosef, as I said, only a few months before his death, said a case came before him where there were two witnesses. And actually, they were both observant male Jews, because obviously women don't qualify as witnesses, that we know. And, uh, and uh, secular Jews don't qualify as witnesses, that we know too, uh, let alone reform. But, uh, but there was a problem, because one of those two male observant Jews was a judge, a judge in a civil court of the state of Israel. And says Rabbi Ovadia Yosef, all judges in the courts of the state of Israel are reshaim. They are in the legal, halachic, religious category of rasha, evil, and therefore ineligible to give testimony. Why? Well, go back to what I said about Rabbi Amar, the civil courts are considered as Rabbi Ovadia Yosef too, held repeatedly as Gentile courts that are illegitimate. And he said, clearly, you know, these are not legitimate courts because, for instance, they admit testimony of women. And that, of course, is, you know, makes it totally trafe. So every judge in an Israeli civil court is rendered ineligible to give testimony, and therefore this voids the marriage and he ruled in the case that came before him that the couple needs to remarry. Now, I, I, I'm giving you these examples and you may be thinking, you know, all right, you know, too much information. 
I'm trying to convey to you that the fact that we don't deal with these issues doesn't do us any good because it doesn't make it go away. And 65 years into the life of the state, we are encountering this clash that represents itself by a growing trend of segregation of women. And you may know that today there are neighborhoods in which they expect women to walk on the other pavement, on the other side. And there are all kinds of rabbis who rule that women should not be speaking uh, on the phone in public. And they started instituting separate lines for men and women in uh, medical clinics, in supermarkets, in certain neighborhoods. And of course, the phenomenon of the segregated bus lines, which started, this isn't in Moses' time, or in Abraham's time, or in King David's time. In the 70s, there was a pilot one line to the Kotel where Hasidic pressure brought about separation of men and women in the bus. There are now 70 public bus lines in which women are expected to sit in the back and they ride about 2,500 rides a day in these 70 public bus lines. I, I'm, again, I'm giving that as an example to say Israel in year 2013, 2014 is facing an existential challenge. Now, where does that challenge represent itself in the most clear and evident way? And we could speak for, we could stay together for hours, which you don't have, uh, in dealing with a variety of areas. And we list, and you'll be able to see it on our website, we list about 20 areas. It's kashrut, it's shabbat, it's agriculture, it's who is a Jew, it's marriage, it's, it's divorce, it's status of women, it's the military, it's education, it's uh, the, the workforce. It's not a coincidence that the former governor of the Bank of Israel, Professor Stanley Fisher, and the current governor of, uh, of the Bank of Israel, Dr. Uh, Flug, and the uh, chair of the National Economic Council, Professor Eugene Kendall, and the head of the Taub Center, Professor Dan Ben-David, all join in one thing. The major threat to Israel's economic well-being is the non-participation of the ultra-Orthodox in the workforce and their refusal to teach core curricular studies, math, science, English, and, uh, and civics to their male children. It, it, now, it, if I told you that, you would think, you know, What's he talking about? So I'm not saying that. I know very little about economy. This is Professor Stanley Fisher. This is Professor Dan Ben-David. This is Professor Eugene Kendall. They've identified, you know what? What they are saying is, startup nation is wonderful. It's telling very, very limited part of the picture. The reality is, says Professor Dan Ben-David, if we don't address that, it will not take many decades before Israel slips into a third world economy. So again, the fact that we don't talk about it and we feel ambivalent and embarrassed, you know, that's not something that we should be bringing to a communal table, doesn't do us or Israel any good. So where does that represent itself in the most vivid, challenging area? And that is the last point I will be making, and then we'll see if we have a few minutes. We should be. Uh, okay. So the area of marriage, the right to marry. So given what I've said, please understand that there is this clash between the founding vision, which says explicitly the state of Israel, as I mentioned before, will be open to Jewish migration from all corners of the world and will develop the resources of the country for the benefit of all its inhabitants, it goes on to say, will be based upon the precepts of liberty, justice, and peace as taught by the Hebrew prophets, which is fantastic, fantastic. I mean, clearly, the founding fathers of the state of Israel did not think of a theocracy. They thought of something that if we were to sit together and think what kind of Jewish inspiration for a modern democratic Jewish state could there be, we wouldn't have come up with better than the values of liberty, justice, and peace as taught by Amos and and Isaiah and Micah, there can't be any better. But then it goes on to be very concrete. We'll uphold full social and political equality to all regardless of religion, gender, or race, and we'll ensure freedom of religion, conscience, culture, education, etc. There you have it. It's very clear. Freedom of religion and conscience, equality regardless of religion, there can't be any question. 
But of course, there is. And you know it better than I. Because when your founding document said all men are created equal, and they're all endowed with inalienable uh, right to liberty, it took a while for people to realize that's not compatible with the existence of slavery. Well, so it takes a while, but now most Israelis clearly, and if you look at our website, you'll see one of the features of our work is a systematic polling of public opinion in Israel, and we publish an annual religion and state index, and you will see there is a clear overwhelming majority of Israelis who are asked about, do you want to see freedom of religion and conscience becoming a reality in Israel? Who say yes. And every question on these issues of public transportation on Shabbat and equal recognition of reform and conservative rabbis and recognition of Jews by choice who converted reform or conservative and freedom of marriage and civil marriage and unorthodox marriage, every question there is a clear, overwhelming majority of Israelis who say, we support that. That's the vision of Israel that we would like to see realized. So on the issue of marriage, what we have is, on the one hand, this founding vision, and on the other hand, the law says that the only marriage recognized in Israel, I mean, celebrated and recognized in Israel, are those marriages that are celebrated by religious authorities. There is no civil marriage in Israel for anybody, Jews and non-Jews alike. Now, whereas for Christians, all Christian denominations are recognized more or less on equal footing, when it comes to Jews, the only rabbinic authority that's recognized to celebrate marriage of Jews is Orthodox. Now, what's the result of that? The result of that for Israelis is that hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens are denied the right to marry. Not like my daughter, who married in August, uh, and we are all, of course, overjoyed, but she grew up in a reform household. Her um, groom, her husband, grew up secular. They wanted an egalitarian, creative, Jewish religious ceremony, which they could not get because the Orthodox rabbinate doesn't provide it. There is no legal alternative in Israel, so we had an illegal ceremony with a friend of the family who's been like grandfather to the kids, uh, who is a, a reform rabbi who, who officiated at the wedding. Of course, it had no legal validity. Hundreds of guests and family, we are all very, very happy. But two days later, we and the groom's family packed up our suitcases, traveled to New York. And in New York, lo and behold, I, an Israeli citizen, a resident of Jerusalem, I have a license to officiate at legal weddings under the laws of the state of New York. And there I signed my daughter's marriage certificate, marriage license. And then they went back to Israel. And on the basis of my signature in New York, they could register themselves as a married couple. <laughs> but she had an alternative. She could go to the Orthodox rabbinate because there was no question about both she and the groom being Jewish in good standing, you know, good, good status. And they could subject themselves to the ceremony, non-egalitarian ceremony that the rabbinate would provide them. But there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis who do not have this alternative. So for instance, just spoke on the phone with an Israeli who originally came from here. Uh, she grew up in Ventura. Uh, her father was the mayor of Ventura. Uh, she was adopted at the age of one. And the parents realized that there was a who is a Jew issue and wanted to make sure that she be recognized as a Jew. So they arranged with, even though they were members of the Reform Congregation in Ventura, they arranged with the University of Judaism, uh, Beth Din, to convert this one-year-old baby with the mikvah, with the ritual immersion. And she grew up, and grew up in a strong Reform household, strong Jewish identity, met this Israeli boy, fell in love, wanted to get married, made aliyah, is an Israeli citizen, wanted to get married, and lo and behold, realized they can't get married. They can't get married because she's good enough to make Aliyah under the law of return, but the Orthodox rabbin doesn't recognize it as Jewish because when she converted at the age of one, 
it was at the University of Judaism, Beth Din, and they don't recognize her as Jewish. And therefore, there is no place where she can marry. Now, Jewish communities all over the world, and especially in North America, stood up for the right of Soviet Jewry to be freed from the Soviet regime. Let my people go. We chained ourselves to the Russian consulates and the embassy, and we pushed the American administration, and it was Schultz, and it was Nixon. And we prevailed. A million new immigrants came to Israel from the former Soviet Union. About 350,000 of them, like Tanya Margulis, beautiful 26-year-old girl, came to Israel at the age of four from the Ukraine, served in the army, studied at the university, is working, as I said, lovely, impressive young lady, wanted to get married to her chosen one, who is a career officer in a combat unit, and realized they couldn't get married. Why? Because her name is Tanya Margulis. Yes, her father is Margulis, but her mother is not halachically Jewish. And therefore, she is an Israeli citizen. She is, of course, able to serve in the army and risk her life. But when it comes to marriage, the rabbinate doesn't recognize her as Jewish. And she is just a representative of, as I said, 350,000 Israeli citizens from the former Soviet Union whose mother or grandmother is not Jewish, none of them can legally marry in Israel. And of course, by extension, you will easily understand what that means for this community. And you may have discussed, and you will be hearing uh, uh, Kerry Olitsky uh, soon, uh, uh, you have discussed and heard about the Pew study. At this point, 58%, uh, potentially 58% intermarriage. What that means is, between the intermarriage and reform and conservative conversions, which are the overwhelming majority of conversions performed in the Jewish community, more than half of the next generation of American Jews, more than half of the next generation of American Jews would not be eligible to legally marry in Israel. And I'm going back, and with that I'll end, to say, I assume that all of us here at least most of us, care for Israel and for the Jewish people. And I'm suggesting to you it will be a catastrophe at the point that the next generation will realize that they don't have an equal place at the table when it comes to Israel. Now, that is not because that's how Israelis want it to be. Clearly, the overwhelming majority of Israelis share and would like to see the vision of Israel's Declaration of Independence come true. And Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state be, identif by, be, uh, be defined by the promise of religious freedom and equality, by the promise of full social and political equality regardless of religion, by religious tolerance and diversity and pluralism. The ones who don't are the politicians who trade our dignity and rights as a merchandise for the highest bidder. And the question is, do you have a stake in it? And I suggest to each and every one of you who cares and feels that Israel is too important to be left to horse trading politicians, that Israelis are eager to have you join with us in bringing Israel to its rightful, founding, exciting, inspiring vision of a Jewish and democratic state rooted in the principles of liberty, justice, and peace as taught by the Hebrew prophets and assures and upholds full freedom of religion and conscience and equality. The vision of Rabbi Amar and Rabbi Ovadia Yosef may be shared by their disciples but it's going to take Israel back into the Middle Ages. The idea of rejecting the legitimacy of the Knesset and the judiciary and the laws and basically equating it with embracing Satan is untenable. So when you leave and pick up, hopefully, the materials, you'll see the card. Bring back, bring you one card, just so that I can hold it. Yeah, okay. And the easiest thing that you can do is, on the back of the card, well, when you open the card, you'll see 
First of all, just a sample of the data, 62% of Israeli Jews support freedom of marriage. And we engaged in research and checked the status of freedom of marriage in 194 countries in the world and integrated it into an interactive map of the world. And if you open up this website, you'll see every place you hold the mouse will open up that country and will tell you what's the status of marriage freedom in that country. And you will see in these three colors that the map is coded with 45 countries. Only 45 countries in the world deny their citizens freedom of marriage. Israel is the one and only democracy among them. So yes, Israel is indeed the only democracy in the Middle East. But it's that one democracy, one in the world, that still feels that it needs to bow down to religious control over such basic civil right as marriage and denies hundreds of thousands of its citizens and the majority of the next generation of your community the dignity of being able to found a legal wedding. And the back is just a suggestion. Let Netanyahu and Minister of Religious Affairs Bennett and Minister of Finance leader of Yashatid, Yair Lapid, hear from you that you care. So there is an address where if you click it, you'll see with one click, you can communicate with Lapid and Netanyahu and Bennett. And you can adapt the message as you see fit. Let them hear that you are indeed joining hands with us in bringing about that vision, that dream, that need for Israel which is truly Jewish and truly democratic. Historically, when Israel was founded, people said to Ben Gurion, "Don't allow, a, 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 don't make it a religious state." Okay. That's number one. That's currently the ultra-orthodox party, the Shas party, is losing votes and losing seats in the Knesset. Do you see the time that this, if over time, will be that way, that, that they will lose any power that they have, and they would be suggested to, to, to put in the same place as America puts people like the Amish? Being yourself. Kezai. Kezai. Let the rest of us live. Uh, let me hear the questions first, and then I'll try and, and respond, because otherwise I'm yeah. afraid of the ire of the organizers. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it happens that I just finished with a book by Moshe Leshem called Balaam's Curse. Are you familiar with the book? No. It talks exactly about the same thing in 1986. And he summarized this um, problem that we have in Israel as um, the Jews of today wants to move forward, while the Orthodox wants to move forward to the past. Yeah. Well, uh, all right, thank you. Uh, I will see if I have it here. If not, I'll, I'll rephrase it. But thank you for that reference. I'll suggest to you a quote that's not 1986, but is 1947. Uh, not by uh, Moshe Leshem, but by Chaim Weizmann, the first president of the State of Israel, which sort of expresses the same sentiment. Yeah. To follow up on the first gentleman, this is the first coalition, as far as I have seen, of the government, yes. where the religious parties do not have the balance of power. Yeah. It seems like th this is now the best chance of doing some of the changes that are needed to implement and your vision. What do you think? All right. I, obviously, I'm delighted to know that you're knowledgeable uh, and, uh, and follow the events, and obviously you are right. So, A, I realize that as patient as you may be, there is only so much that we could cover together, and therefore I urge you to log on to our website, uh, and you have the address, you'll have the address of the website on this. And you will f be able to find a post that we uh, wrote 
shortly after the elections based on polling that we did a few days before the election and a few days after the election. And the title is Making Sense of the Elections. And what we suggest, based on this specific polling that we did and our overall sense of uh, expertise in areas of religion, let's say, what we suggest is you cannot understand the last elections and the results of the elections without understanding the role, the growing role, of issues of religion and state in the public psyche. And indeed, those who didn't read the map right paid the penalties. And Tsipi Livni and Shelley Yakimovich and Mofaz paid the penalties. And those who did, and first and foremost Yair Lapid, and to a degree merits, uh, were able to bear the fruits. So I agree with you, and this is indeed the first time in many years that the government is not dependent on uh, religious Haredi parties. Having said that, we aren't yet at an ideal place, because whereas the Haredi are not part of the government, Habayta Yehudi, the Jewish home, Naftali Bennett's party, is uh, able to, in their coalition agreement, to secure a veto power on any legislation that involves um, uh, religious issues. And therefore, they now, and, and again, we didn't have time to speak about it, these issues of the right to marry are now sort of coming up, both in Israel and among some of the leading Jewish organizations here, such as the American Jewish Committee. And just a few weeks ago at the GA, I spoke about it at a panel for the first time at the GA addressing the issue of, of the right to marry. Uh, the, uh, they have already announced that they are going to veto any legislation that will introduce civil marriages. So we have moved a step or two steps forward, but half a step backwards. So there is work to be done, and that is, again, why I urge you to consider the role that you may play in multiplying our ability in Israel. Because, yes, I'm pointing to an overwhelming majority of Israelis who support it, but it's a silent majority. It's a passive majority. It's a majority that is made often of people who believe, like many in America, nothing can be done to change it. That's the way things are, because it's been that way for 65 years, to the point that many have lost hope that we can effect change. I'm a firm believer in the ability to effect change. I think I mentioned before, let my people go. We look at let my people go. This was a miracle, no less than the creation of the state of Israel. Who would have believed just a few years earlier that the Iron Curtain would fall down and that Soviet Jewry would be freed? And you were able to make it happen because you believed in it. So the reality is that we are in Israel indeed rising to far better understanding and consciousness of the threats to the state, to the security, to the economy, to civil liberties, to human dignity of these issues. If you look at our special uh, site on freedom of marriage, a couple of weeks ago we added a, 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 a column or a chapter based on quotes that the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Professor Aaron Barak, allowed me to use from a book that he's writing on human dignity, in which he lays it out as it is. The fact that religion controls marriage in Israel is a violation of human rights, of human dignity, of religious freedom, and of equality. There are no two ways around it. You can attempt to say, yes, it's justified to violate human rights and human dignity and religious freedom and equality, but you can't deny the fact that this is what it is. So, uh, just what was the last part of your question, remind me? And, well, could do you foresee yeah. a, a time in the future when this yes. party is yes. okay? So here is the difference. How many Amish are there? Not many. Not many. Okay. <laughs> if, again, if we had time, we could talk about core curriculum because the Amish presented a challenge to the authorities in terms of their educational approach. The difference is 26% of Israeli Jewish first graders today, 26% in the country, study in ultra-Orthodox schools. They uh, increase, the birth rate is at this point about seven children per family compared to 2.1 in the non-Haredi community. 
And this adds an element of urgency because what we are not going to be able to change in the next few years will be much harder to change later on. Now this is why the heads of the army are now shrying Gewald like they never did before. Because what they are seeing is Ben-Gurion exempted 400 yeshiva students in 1948. The number recently reached over 60,000. Ten years ago, it constituted 7% of the annual conscription. Today, it represents 14% of the annual conscription. And as I said, 26% today of the Jewish first graders studied ultra-Orthodox schools. And the heads of the army are saying, if we don't do something about it now, we fear for Israel's security. Now, the now, and if we don't do something about it, also happens at a time when, last year, the Supreme Court handed down a landmark ruling which it really attempted to avoid. It wanted the political system to rectify the problem, but it didn't. Because as far as Netanyahu is concerned, and again, he has great merit. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I do not, I am not a, a, a taking a stand on political security issues, and I have tremendous regard for him. But on this issue, he felt that his political well-being depends on support of the Haredi parties, and he was willing to pay the price. The Supreme Court said, this is unconstitutional. You can't do that. And as a result, not only is the Supreme Court now being assaulted, but the whole political system is, is at, at, you know, at chaos over this issue of draft. But something will now happen, which means changes are in the air. Public opinion is ready for it. The question is whether we can raise consciousness and gain that kind of partnership and that kind of support for the organizations that are active on the field, such as your respective movements, whether it's reform or the conservative or reconstruction, such as non-denominational, non-partisan organizations as Chidush, uh, women's organizations, and a few others who are working together to bring about that vision of Israel, which I believe both Israel and the Jewish people will benefit from.